0: In the research on decision making, what we do see is that what people regret uh, in the long term is not taking risks. And I think people don't take risks because the this, the outcome is very uncertain. And we are uh, often people are not sure that they want to um, take a risk that could really turn out um, in, a, in a very negative way. And there's something about. Uh, we, we, our human tendency is to focus very much in the short term and to uh, over-index on the positive or negative consequences of a decision in the very near term. And so if you start to play out, you know, what is the kind of decision tree, if you will, in your mind of um, the likelihood that that really terrible consequence is going to happen, that may help you take a risk because you see that it's likely to be somewhere, you know, in between the, the best case and the worst case that you have played out in your head.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. In today's episode, my conversation is with Abby Davison. Abby is a social innovation leader and career development expert. She has served as president of the Gap Foundation, and her expertise in career development comes from serving as an alumni career advisor and coach at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Together with her co-author, she has pioneered strategies and tips on how to make big life-changing decisions using an effective framework in her book, money, and love. In this episode, learn about why making hard decisions is supposed to be difficult, especially when it involves love and money, how to overcome decision paralysis, the best way to have conversations with loved ones about big decisions, why practicing making hard choices is like building a muscle, the long-term downside of playing it safe in not making hard decisions, which is a decision in and of itself, and much more. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on all platforms. It helps bring more content like this to your ears and helps us engage in insightful conversations so you can keep learning and being better every day. So with that, I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with Abby Davison. So I think we I want to start off with a bunch of really interesting questions about sort of decision making, and we want to I think it'll be a good way to segue into the stuff that you've been doing with the book that you're writing, but also the stuff to do with what's going on with people trying to do things right now, making hard decisions. So maybe you can sort of answer this question about why is making hard decisions so challenging for us? And this will hopefully segue into a few following questions that I have for you.
0: Sure, well, you know, the decisions that are hardest are the ones that are at the intersection of money and love. And we are not taught how to make these decisions. We don't have courses in school about how to make these decisions. And so um, we're also, uh, I think, socialize, to compartmentalize these decisions and to think about career decisions, financial decisions with our heads and relationship decisions, love decisions with our hearts and really not to let our minds influence um, our love decisions and not to let our emotions get in the way of financial decisions. And the truth is that that's impossible. Um, You can't separate those two things because every big, hard decision in life has a component of money and a component of love. And when you try to keep those siloed, you're more likely to make a decision you regret. And um, it's it's very challenging unless you look at the holistic picture.
1: Is there something to be said about making decisions between your head and between your heart? Because I think there's a lot of people right now who are trying to think strategically. They're trying to figure out what's in it for them from a very intellectual standpoint. You know, they're making decisions mostly with their head. But at the same time, I think there needs to be a balance between making decisions with your head and your heart. How do you strike that balance, especially when there is someone else involved in that picture, whether it be your family members, could be friends and, and loved ones, what's there to be said about having a balance between the head and the heart? And should you skew towards the head or the heart in terms of making more of a decision in that respect?
0: I I certainly think there's a balance. And I think everyone has an innate tendency, um, sort of their default style, if you will, when making big decisions. And we actually have a quiz on our website, uh, moneylovebook.com that can give you a sense of what your innate tendency is. Some people are exactly as you say, those analyzers who like to uh, have lots of spreadsheets and really um, break down a problem from so many different angles. and other people are more uh, gut trusters, right? They, they really want to listen their, with, to their intuition. They, they want to, um, in some ways, kind of follow their hearts. And then there are people who are in between. And it's really important to know your tendency because then you can put up some safeguards in place. Um, because when when particularly when we're stressed and certainly when we're facing a big life decision, we do tend to be in a state of heightened emotion and a state of stress, uh, we can... Uh, kind of rush to the extreme. So the analyzers can get stuck in analysis paralysis and actually not move forward because they're they're over-intellectualizing an issue. Um, And then the gut trusters can become impulsive and make decisions too quickly and then not think through all the consequences. And so I think it's very important to know, first of all, what is your tendency? And then you can put some um, processes in place to uh, try to circumvent that tendency from taking over and to have a more balanced approach
1: what are some of those processes
0: well so our book uh, money and love lays out a five-step framework we call it the five c's and there's a couple reasons that we use a framework uh, in the book the first is that um, as humans we have a tendency to not want to be uh uncomfortable, right? So, and when we're facing uncertainty, we are in a place of unknowing, in a place of, um, like I said, heightened emotions. And so uh, many of us just want to get to the other side of that decision because we don't want to feel that uh, discomfort. We don't want to feel that uncertainty, that not knowing. And so the process of having a framework that you're following helps you slow down. It helps you access what Uh, Nobel Prize winning economist Daniel Kahneman calls system Two thinking, which is the much more logical, deliberate, uh, systematic, uh, deliberate uh, actions and and thought that are hard to access when you are in that heightened state of emotion. So it's about following a trusted process. It's about kind of turning over the right rocks so that you are are not... um, over analyzing something, so you, there's only five steps. You, you're not supposed to take twenty, uh, but there are five, and we are advocating slowing down your decision making, not making a decision uh, too hastily, uh, and and so you can feel really confident in the process that you followed, even if the outcome isn't the one that you might have hoped for.
1: I feel like there's also that you know you mentioned before the the inter sort of the inextricable link between love and money, and especially when it comes to financial decisions and emotional decisions, they're very intertwined, and it's very hard to separate them. It's hard to sort of think exclusively or mutually exclusively within one realm. Why is that the case? I mean, you've probably answered this before, but also the book answered this as well, but can you sort of speak to the the notion of, of, obviously, us as human beings you know, financial side of it is a very important for us because it gives us the ability to pursue goals. It allows us to live our lives. Is that sort of the underpinning of why it's so linked with emotional decisions? I'd like to understand a bit more about why they're so inextricably linked together.
0: Sure. Well, so money is a tool, um but most people uh, do have stories, money stories, financial stories that accumulate over time, and it often comes from um, how they grew up and what their earliest experience with money was. And you know, if you are someone who, um, for example, your family struggled to pay rent and you had to move multiple times, you might have a very different relationship with money than someone else who uh, grew up with a lot of money, but it was the way that their family expressed love they they weren't told that they um somebody loved them but they got um very uh, lavish gifts right so uh, and often people don't discuss these money stories they just become the unconscious um building blocks of the way that we make decisions and so lots of emotions get attached to money but we but money is still a taboo topic in many um, circles in many relationships. It's not discussed. And so we make a lot of assumptions of the people that we are in relationship with, that they might have a similar attitude towards money as we do. Uh, and one of the things our book really advocates is not making assumptions, is actually having very transparent conversations about finances with the people you are in relationships with so that you can unpack some of those money stories that are unconsciously informing your actions and your attitudes and start to um, you know, determine if you are on the same page about things. And we're not saying that everyone who is in a relationship has to have the exact same beliefs about money and the exact same experiences. But what we are saying is that you need to have a commitment to examining them, uh, discussing them candidly, and then, if you do have differences, working towards mutually agreeable solutions. And we're not saying take all the emotion out of it. That's certainly not possible. I mean, money is uh, in in our society, you know, definitely something that is very important and um, and hard to separate emotion from. But by slowing down and uh, by having these conversations, and we lay out a number of prompts uh, in the book. To, to as a way into the conversation, we can um, be more likely to reach solutions that feel good to all of the parties involved.
1: I feel like there's a obviously this decision making framework, right? And, and it really helps create um, sort of, I guess, puts you a little bit um, at ease in terms of how do you create a structured framework around making these decisions. At the same time, I think there are also a lot of people out there who are inundated with a lot of options, and they suffer from decision paralysis. And they figure out, you know, what is, what's something that I can do? How do I achieve the next thing? Or what, what should I, what job should I take? Um, Because there's so many uh, options out there. So, can you sort of speak to sort of the the notion of how does someone? overcome decision paralysis, especially when they are discussing those emotional and financial implications with their loved ones. You know, there's so many things that they can choose from together, individually, you know, does that sort of tie in again with the framework that you're creating that makes it easier for them at the end of the day to to make those hard decisions?
0: So the first step in the framework, I think, is really key here. Um, and the first step is to clarify what is important to you. And yes, there are many doors that you um, have to close and other doors that you want to open and walk down uh, as part of life. And in order to figure out which doors to close and which doors to open, it's so helpful to know what is most important to you. And it sounds easy, but it's actually quite tricky, particularly for those of us who uh, like to... um, be high achievers and are ambitious and are used to kind of checking things off of a list of going to a, you know, prestigious university and earning good grades and, you know, um, finding a a job at a a place that is uh, well regarded. And so uh, part of it is actually untangling what we want from all of the other things that people around us want. And there's a, a French philosopher, named Rene Girard, who wrote about this term mimetic desire, which is that our wants are very powerfully influenced by others' wants. And so if we are uh, renting an apartment, we're very happy renting, but we see all of our friends start to buy their own places, we may start Thinking, oh, I should be buying my own place, and I'm I'm behind maybe because I don't have plan to purchase um, a home of my own. So you really need to start stripping away those wants of what your parents wanted for you, what others in your around you are doing, and tap into your core values. And that makes all of those other decisions easier because you are living in alignment with what truly motivates you and truly makes you you
1: yeah i feel like that mimetic desire that you mentioned is is really key and you know a lot of people are influenced by their parents and they say and so they should be but at the same time they need to as they get older and more mature they need to figure out what their own path is what life they want to lead and really taking those influences but not letting them influence you wholeheartedly but also just figuring out what's your own path and that ties into sort of the decisions that they want to make for the future, not necessarily because of what society expects of them, but what they should expect for themselves, and really pave their own future. and And I think the the the, the idea of mimetic desires is really key there. What about sort of about interacting with a loved one? And I want to get to the sort of the crux of this because, and I'm, I'm, I'll tell you a little bit of an anecdote um, later on, but I have come across a lot of situations where certain in a couple um, structured relationship where one partner is trying to make a big decision, but that decision ex, uh, really impacts them whole, uh, exclusively. So let's say, for example, one of them wants to start a business and this will impact their lives. This is, will impact that individual, but it'll also have a, a side effect on their partner as well um, indirectly. So how does one person, the person who's trying to make that big decision, approach their partner? And is there a, a good way of doing about it? Because in many cases, the partner finds out last minute and they weren't told all the information about the decision that the other partner was, was trying to take. So should this approach be taken really at the early stages where you're trying to just sort of like... um approach someone and say, look, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. You know, what do you think? Um, because there's no sort of easy way about doing this. You'll probably have uncomfortable situation, uh, uncomfortable conversations. Uh, but is there a method uh, to all of that?
0: Absolutely. And you're right. It is much more helpful to um, find a good place and time to have these conversations. So we absolutely don't recommend springing a big Uh, decision on your partner as you are walking out the door uh, or as you're brushing your teeth and getting ready for bed at night. um, These, just as you wouldn't um, spring a a conversation on your manager where you're asking for a raise or you're um, kind of have another big, big topic to talk about, you shouldn't do that to your partner either. So we recommend um, making an appointment saying, you know, I have something big that's on my mind. I'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, Could we speak uh, find some time this weekend. One of the things that works for my husband and I is to go on a hike because we find that when we are out of our home, out of the chaos of everyday life, uh, and we're on a beautiful hiking trail and a um, where there's a great view, we just think more expansively. And so we are able to um, walk side by side, which actually is helpful. You're not looking directly at the other person, so you can be a bit more vulnerable. You can um, speak your mind more freely and you know, dedicate the space and time to, to share what's on your mind and then really listen. Um, the second C in our framework is communicate. And when we think about communicating, we often think about talking and we rehearse what we're going to say and we want to phrase it perfectly. But so much about Communication is listening and hearing what that other person says back to us and actually letting yourself be influenced by what the other person says. And so that's why the communicate step is pretty early uh, in the framework, because what's not helpful is going down a path. of your whole thought process, working through, you know, um, many, many weeks or months of a decision, and then coming with a very fully formed thought to the other person who's important to you. And you've kind of basically decided um, by the time you bring it up, it's much more helpful to bring it up at the early stages and say, Hey, you know, I'm just starting to think about this, I'd love to know, you know, your thoughts on it. I know it's going to affect both of us if we make this move, or if I start this company, or, you know, what have you. Uh, and so not assuming that just because you are the one taking action, that that decision is yours alone.
1: Yeah, I want to double click on the communication part, because it's, I think it's super important, especially when, in many cases, you know, partners are, you know, they're, they're very, you know, especially within my network of friends, you know, they're, they're very, people who are you know very assertive people they want to get their thoughts across but some people want to interrupt they want to project their own view and dominate the conversation and just much in the same way it happens in the workplace it also happens at home as well what are techniques that someone can use to approach a good communication method i mean as i mentioned before you know these communication especially when it comes to these types of conversations is always uncomfortable and you especially if you have a very strong point of view that you want to do this and then you're getting you're not getting the um, expectation from the other partner that you were expecting then that also can become a bit more um, difficult to have so how do you sort of approach that do you sort of look you know try to make sure that you're great that you don't interrupt with each other at the beginning maybe you're Delay. You'll you know you'll have a conversation and then maybe have another conversation down the road when you guys have sort of thought about it, slept slept on it for a little bit. You know what's the approach to the communication part of it?
0: Yeah, I think everyone is different. Uh, certainly, people who tend towards introversion like to have some time to reflect before they respond to um, to a big idea or a big thought. So it really depends on the person, I would say. But some universal tips that can be helpful are, you know, number one, make an appointment at a time that is good for both people. Uh, If if you know that you have a tendency to interrupt, or if you have strong feelings, you could set out an expectation at the outset of, okay, I'm going to share my thoughts for, let's set a timer for three minutes, and then I'm going to set a timer for you. And you share your response and your reaction, and I won't interrupt. And then I'll, I'll respond after that. So everyone, you know, if you know the patterns that you tend to get into and the things that have made previous conversations go sideways, you can start to compensate and start to say, okay, I know the last time we talked about this topic, we both got really heated uh, and we needed to take a break. And that, by the way, is perfectly okay. Don't expect that you have to solve everything in one conversation. In fact, most big decisions are going to involve multiple conversations. So you could even say, um, let's have this first conversation just be about me sharing this topic and you sharing your reactions if you want to, or we could make another meeting. for you to, once you've had a chance to sleep on it and reflect, come back and share you know, what you're thinking and your response, and we can go from there. And so you can sort of break it up into multiple conversations depending on the preferences of the individuals. But the, the part that's so helpful is that self-knowledge and the knowledge of the dynamics that maybe haven't made previous conversations successful
1: and I feel like having more of these conversations is like doing reps so once you have you know you're going to the gym once you sort of exercise that muscle of knowing how to communicate well being self-aware then next the subsequent conversations about new decisions that need to be made or a big decision in life will become progressively easier because you have that system in place now you know what you know the potential reactions and the dynamics of that person you're going to engage with. So I feel like, you know, having more of these tough conversations is hard at the beginning, but then eventually it will get easier.
0: It is absolutely a muscle and it's absolutely something that gets easier over time and I our book is based on a course, it was inspired by a course that my co-author taught for almost 50 years at Stanford Business School. And when I took her course, I had been dating someone who I met in business school, we had been together for a little less than a year and we were facing big decisions because graduation was coming up and we needed to decide if we were going to accept jobs in the same city and if we ended up in the same city, if we would move in together. And these were incredibly uncomfortable conversations because we certainly, you know, if not for the forcing function of graduation, would want to have put them off for much longer, but prompted by the timing and the fact that we were taking uh, my co-authors class who really encouraged those exactly the type of conversations we had to have. Um, you know, she used to say that uh, they feel like you're standing at the edge of a very tall diving board and the diving board is not getting any lower. So you might as well take the plunge because it is uh, very helpful to know whether you're on the same page about things uh, early on in a relationship. And and so we established you know, how we would talk about these uncomfortable conversations. It's now been 15 years and they have absolutely gotten easier. It's not to say that we're perfect at them, but we've developed the um, the uh, habits that we know it's good for us to get out of our house. It's good for us to do it on a hike. It's good for us to make an appointment. It's good for us to um, let one person sort of share a full thought before the other person responds. So you do get to know your, uh, your, what makes these conversations go more smoothly and they reps absolutely get easier over time. So
1: let's quickly go to sort of just the, go back to sort of like those hard decisions. And I want to talk about sort of the long-term and the short-term effects of not making big decisions. I know a lot of people, especially the harder the decision becomes, the longer that it gets delayed. And it's sort of like proportional to that because they wanna delay it, they wanna think about it, and it just never gets done. But is there something to be said about the long-term effects of not making a big decision? And have you seen it in your own studies and engaging with your own uh, network of people who've, the, a group of people who've made decisions, hard decisions you know, in uh, a short period of time or in an efficient amount of time versus those who like to delay things, and do you see that there's uh, downsides and upsides of making those hard decisions over a longer period of time?
0: Well, delaying a decision, not making a decision, is actually making a decision. So there are um, real consequences to leaving doors open, right? We, We like to think that, oh, by leaving all the doors open, by not making this decision, I'll have all these options available to me. But that's not true. You may lose out on opportunities. Um, certainly, one decision that people tend to delay is the decision to have a child. And there are very real consequences because we know that fertility rates decline over time um, for women. We know that uh, incidents of, of abnormalities in birth uh, increase over time as the age of the parents uh, increases. And so there is very is very real science around, around that topic. Um, but you know, in the research on decision making, what we do see is that what people regret uh, in the long term is not taking risks. And I think people don't take risks because the this, the outcome is very uncertain. And we are uh, often people are not sure that they want to um, take a risk that could really turn out um, in a in a very negative way. And so one of the things that we do as part of our framework our, our final C and I know we'll we'll go through the framework uh in in uh, in order later but the last C is about consequences. And there's something about uh we we our human tendency is to focus very much in the short term and to over uh, overindex on the positive or negative consequences of a decision in the very near term. And the truth is that the near term is real, but so is you know that that is over relatively quickly, right? The the six month period after a decision, which I say is the near term, uh, is is very quickly over, and then you are in the medium term and the long term. And by forcing yourself to think about the medium term and the long term consequences, both positive and negative, and then assigning likelihoods to those consequences you then can start to see that, oh, yes, that worst case scenario that is holding me back from taking this risk is actually very unlikely to happen. And so if you start to play out, you know, what is the kind of decision tree, if you will, in your mind of um, the likelihood that that really terrible consequence is going to happen, that may help you take a risk because you see that it's likely to be somewhere, you know, in between the, the best case and the worst case that you have played out in your head.
1: Can we, yeah, let's let's do that, Ashley. Let's quickly go through those five Cs in your book and just from a high level. And then I'll probably explain a little bit about my own personal situation and maybe areas where I could have worked on and maybe we can sort of work through that. But I think it'll be really pertinent for the audience just to hear what these five Cs are. We spoke about them earlier in the conversation, but just sort of check them off one by one so that people are fully aware about um, what needs to be done and hopefully, you know, take that with them and you know, learn more about what these five C's are.
0: Yeah, well, I love a case study. So let's get into your, uh, your situation after we go through the five C's. So the first, as I mentioned, is to clarify what's most important to you. The second is communicate with the other person or people involved most affected by the decision. The third C is to uh, consider a broad range of choices. The fourth is to check in with friends, family, and trusted resources. And the fifth C is to uh, explore the likely consequences in the short term, medium term, and long term.
1: Okay, so I think you know, for me personally, uh, I'm I'm looking at the five C's now, and I think I've done okay, but I'll probably let have be let you be the judge. So, for me, I've uh, I was I think it was like eight years ago or nine, eight to nine years ago. You know, I grew up. In Australia, and then for me, I was in a long-term relationship at that time. I've always had this dream of living abroad and working abroad. So, um, around yeah, eight years ago, I decided to uh, well think about at least uh, moving to the US. So, uh, one of my things was to move to San Francisco, and that was really a part of what I want to do. To not just from my personal standpoint, but from a career standpoint you know, working there, um, building a a relationship network, uh, building a network of friends over there as well. But at the same time, I was leaving a lot um, from home. I was an only child. I was in a relationship and it was tough for me because I really didn't understand about this particular framework at that time. I think it definitely would have made things easier, but I was sort of going off the cuff, usually thinking really with my head more than anything and just say, what's the benefit of this for me? Not necessarily understanding what implications I would have on the people around me. And that was because maybe my youth and a whole bunch of other things and just sort of a super ambitious guy. But I think just going through your list of clarify, communicate, choices, check-in and consequences, I think I really did poorly on the communication side. I'm not really trying to tell people around me my goals and my aspirations and really telling them last minute. I think, you know, that all has been forgiven now, but I think it was just would have been better to engage with more with my parents, um, my friends as well. And I am sort of an introverted guy. So it's really hard for me to really tell people about what I want to do, but also thinking about what if everything fails, you know, we, I'm telling you all of this stuff and then I don't go through it. You know, it'll make me feel, I feel embarrassed and I'll feel, a failure. So, how can, what if I was to sort of go through that entire process again? You know, how would I better structure that in terms of clarifying what I want internally, uh, but also communicating that to the people around me?
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I mean, it absolutely resonates. I think um, so many of us are nervous about sharing what we truly want because it is um, vulnerable. It is. Kind of giving people a glimpse into our soul in a ways. And as you said, if you don't, um, what will they think of you, right? If you don't make good on that dream. And the truth is that um, my co author, her second husband, was a psychiatrist. And he uh, shared this phrase, which I love, which is the definition of intimacy is into me see, allowing somebody else to see into you and see your deepest wishes. And actually that we know that sharing openly with someone else does breed intimacy. It does make people closer in relationships. And so sometimes the thing that we fear is going to um, make people uh, not want to be close to us is exactly the thing that brings them closer. So Uh, That's just something to know. So it sounds like you were pretty clear on what you wanted to do in terms of moving to the U.S. and exploring, um, building a career and a network over there. I think the next step would have been to um, think about the people who would be most affected. It sounds like you had a partner at the time, you had your parents who are invested in your happiness and success, but would would miss you, obviously, if you were living so far away. And so, you know, just... um, Pretty early in your thought process, you know, just sharing. Hey, these are this is something that I've dreamed about. Um, how would how would that feel for you if I went and did this? Is this something would you be interested in? You know, for a partner um, joining me there, is that you know? I don't know if that was even logistically possible, but just just even putting the question out there. Um, when it comes to generating the choices we often see the two extremes, right? We see the, okay, I can stay in Australia, or I could make this move permanently and be in San Francisco. But there are so many places in between those two extremes. There is a um, kind of way to approximate getting information about what a move would be like. So you could do a short-term stint there. You could certainly travel there um, together with the partner who you might have been seeing at the time. You could take a um, a short-term contract role. Uh, you could, you know, there's, there's plays, there's ways to um, experience the consequences of the decision without kind of jumping in with both feet. So I would say, you know, generating those choices and the choices step and the check-in step go hand in hand. So you might have people in your network who have made that move before, who you might have checked in with and said, you know, tell me, you know, you, you have um, this you've made this choice. How did that go for you? What did, what was, did, you know, did it play out as you expected? What was great about it? What was not so great about it? And you're trying to learn from their experience so that you're, um, you know, able to benefit from, from their wisdom. Um, you, you might have uh, colleagues who have spent time there. So you're just trying to get information from trusted resources in a way that lets you get the benefit of their lessons. Um, and then with the consequences. Again, it's trying to anticipate what are all the ways that this could go right. Um, You know, you get to explore a place that it sounds like was, you know, really a bucket list place for you. Uh, You could build a robust network. You could um, have all these wonderful experiences. And what could go really wrong, again, in the short term, medium and long term? Um, And so just making sure as you're going through that process that you're bringing those important people along and you're coming back and you're, you're saying, you know, Maybe you say it at the outset, I'm I'm really just interested in exploring this. I'm gonna go and get a little information, and then I'd love to set up another conversation with you where I tell you about what I've learned. Maybe you do some exploration on your own if this is something you know you're also considering doing with me. And then we come back and talk about it. And again, it's this iterative process. The the five C's are not linear, it's not like a one and done. You just check them all off, and then you know, there's your answer. It's it's about Kind of iterate, iterating, and maybe in the process you realize, okay, what is appealing to me about San Francisco is that it is it represents innovation. It represents, um, you know, I don't know what all the things that it was in your mind, and then you might realize, oh, but really, there's a way to do that without moving there. It's a, it's about you know getting a job in this industry that I was excited about, or, you know, there's other things that you realize as you re-clarify that you could kind of get at the thing that you thought you wanted without doing the thing that you set out to do. And so that's another way that working through this process in a iterative fashion can be helpful.
1: Yeah. I think the, the, the notion of like checking in, I, and then sort of, sort of seeing, you know, getting advice uh, was something that I, Probably had to work on a little bit for me it was probably just you know very gung-ho and sort of booking a one-way ticket there, never being in the city before. So I think in hindsight, I probably would have uh, taken a bit more um, str- uh, strategy to it. Uh, but having said that, though, long story short, every, and everything ended up happening perfectly. Went over there, lived a bunch of years over there, made um, a great network of people. And my partner came over as well, um, and we lived together over there and, and, and traveled the state. So it was a, it worked out in the end, but I think having this framework would have made myself a bit more comfortable um and not having to jump hoops and sort of go in different directions but at the same time i think uh, having even even people not having this framework you know i think they'll learn a lot about themselves um and they'll say look you know there's probably a better way an easier way and i hope that people will resonate with the the framework that you've created uh not for them but also for the people around them and hopefully allow people to make much harder decisions um, and and very important decisions in their life. Uh, I wanted to quickly touch on sort of the dual career couples. I know that you've been working on this topic for quite some time, um, uh, especially with your work at The Gap and also working with other um, industry uh, uh, companies in that sector as well. And it just ties in with the whole notion of making decisions as well, because I'm sure there are a lot of people, my partner and I, you know, very um, ambitious people They we want to work and we want to progress our careers. None of us, or at least from, you know, from the friends I've spoken to have people that just stay at home moms. They really want to go back into the workforce um, once they have a kid. So can you sort of explain some of the findings that you've discovered and some of the insights you've gained from this new paradigm of, you know, mom and dads, um, or just just partners in general, um, sort of going into the workforce and having that discussion about who's going to look after kids, you know, who's going to be working, you know, what what's some of the learnings you can take from that, and what what's changing as well. How do you see this changing in the next couple of years?
0: Yeah, so dual career couples are absolutely on the rise. Uh, I think overall in the US, at least, um, it's three quarters of millennial couples are in a situation where both partners uh, with children, where both partners are working outside the home for pay. Um, And, you know, it is absolutely a very dynamic and fluid situation as, you know, we kind of have. The pendulum swings of everyone is working remotely, and now the back to the office mandates are coming, and then you know we're sort of landing somewhere in between. Um, it's it's a it's a very dynamic space. What it what is absolutely true, regardless of uh, if people are working remotely or in an office, is that having two people in the paid workforce takes extreme intentionality and active discussions in order to make it work for the whole ecosystem. And so, certainly, it's um, something that we advocate. Couples discuss very early on in their relationship in terms of what are their career ambitions, uh, do they want children, what do they, um, what kind of a childcare situation do they think they want, how, where do they think they might want to live. So we go through. Uh, and offer a number of these questions and conversation starters in the book, because we think that it's so much better to find out whether you and a prospective partner are on the same page about these topics early on, uh, as opposed to, you know, once they have a child or a couple of children and realize, oh, we are kind of t- Trending towards a situation that does not work for at least one member of the couple. Um, so, you know, I would say that going in with your eyes wide open, being a w- very aware of the cost of childcare, um, it hopefully is a lot lower in Australia, but it is very high um, in the US. There are uh, a lot of that is borne by individual families. And a lot of the childcare networks that existed uh, really have been um, quite diminished by COVID because of a variety of factors. And so even you know people who are able and willing to pay are having a lot of challenges finding uh, daycare arrangements and uh, other situations to care for their children. Uh, so, you know, I think it's just very tactically important for couples to set up a weekly um, meeting with each other. My husband and I have had this from, you know, I think before we had kids, uh, we call it TCOB on our calendars, taking care of business, where we really go through all of the logistics of um, we have an a eight year old and a 10 year old. And so, you know, they're after school schedules and um and everything is, sometimes we feel like we're landing airplanes because there's so many moving pieces involved in managing the schedules. But we were just very clear on, you know, what uh, each of us is doing. Uh, we want to make sure that the, the um, work involved in running a household and managing care for our children is not landing on one of us. Um, so that we're both, we're both in entrepreneurial roles right now. He um, started his own investment firm. I am building a business related to the book. And so we know that it's going to take both of us supporting each other in order for these new endeavors to flourish. And part of that is getting really tactical every week to figure out, you know, who is doing pickup, who is doing drop-off. Um, we, we also really advocate using um, Eve Rodsky's fair play method to divide up household chores and understand who has responsibility for certain tasks. We also have a version of that in our book um, to give people a sense of, you know, very high level. What are the the categories of tasks that are required? Um, and so I think when you don't have one person automatically in that caregiving role and the other person in the breadwinning role, uh, it's it's really it's really critical that. The active conversations, those reps that we talked about are happening regularly, and you're not falling into a situation that one person is resentful about and just not saying anything. Um, That can be quite toxic for a relationship.
1: That's really good advice. And I think from the perspective of the, the individuals and the couples as well, what about the other side? What can be done in the workplace? What can managers do? What can the, you know, sort of at the enterprise level, can they... um, sort of instigate any policies in place maybe sort of things around daycare you know what what recommendations can those guys do to really make life easier for you guys
0: uh, well, the last chapter in our book is all about those uh, exact topics that you're mentioning, the the laws and the culture and the policies that we feel could be changed in order to better support people who are pursuing both money and love. Because right now, one of the reasons that we are faced with such suboptimal choices is that our money institutions, our career institutions, are not so great on the love front. We are not really... Uh, enabled and empowered to prioritize anything outside of work. Uh, And this is a broad generalization, there are certainly companies, uh, and I've worked for some of them that do that. Um, But one of the things that companies could do is really start by even just collecting data on who is in a caregiving role uh, at the workplace. I was always amazed um, at how we had, when I worked at Gap Inc., so much data on our customers when it came to, you know, how many children they had. And, you know, certainly um, many of the brands under the Gap Inc. umbrella had a tremendous amount of data around uh, the the. Uh, children and the the shopping habits of their customers when it came to uh, buying clothing for those children, but very little data actually about the employees and the children that they had. So uh, we really advocate for companies collecting data on who is providing care, not just for children, but there are people who are caring for older relatives, caring for siblings. uh, And when you have that data, you're then better able to listen to what those employees want and what their needs are. Uh, And so having that data and having those uh, surveys or other tools to collect information about what could be helpful can go a tremendous way towards building the policies and the offerings that could be useful towards people in a dual career situation or, or any caregiving situation for that. Yeah,
1: no, I totally agree. And I think there there's definitely a lot of great companies out there doing that. And it's really about building that uh, really effective culture around workplace to make it much more family friendly and and making it much more um enticing for dual career folks to to come in um and be happy where they work but also know that they're being being taken care of and i think that will add to sort of the goodwill of the company but also to the to to the lifestyle and and standard of living for all the people um joining um, part of that organization and culture and 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 to your point um Childcare in Australia is still very expensive, so very much similar to, to the US. Uh, one thing before we wrap it up is just really about everything that we've spoken thus far has only really occurred to me, I would say in the past five years or so, um, probably a little bit earlier than that. But that's kind of too late. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of people who can benefit from, benefit from this at a much younger age. What are your thoughts about bringing this into the schooling system. I feel like I was never taught this at school. I was never taught about how, how to make hard decisions in life. It's very theory-based, very rote learning um, in schools. So, you know, what's your thoughts? And is there something to be said about bringing this into, um, you know, the not just the education system, but also as parents, teaching your kids about these frameworks and making hard decisions? Because I feel like some people just like learning how to, you know, invest or financial, you know, um, aptitude, that's not being taught well enough in schools. So how do you bring that and really trickle that down into sort of the younger generation so they'll be more well prepared for the future?
0: Yeah, I love that question. I do think that families have a huge opportunity to expose their children to everything that it takes to run a household. Um, some people, you know, do that with the financial um, kind of methods. And and so I've heard stories, this was never done in, in my family growing up, but I've heard stories of uh, parents who ha- take um, all of the cash out that they get as income every month and then have the piles on the kitchen table of all of the bills that they have to pay. And so they literally take bills and say, okay, and this is how much we pay to live in our house. And this is how much we pay each month to have electricity. Um, And so, and that's a very powerful visual example because at the end of all those piles, the children see, Oh, it's a much smaller stack of bills that are available for all the things that I'm always asking for in terms of, um, you know, video games and uh, the wants, right? Not the, not the needs. So I think that doing that as a family, um, making it very transparent um, how the um, chores are divided, how uh, the parents are making decisions about about, um, major life things in an age-appropriate way is very helpful. So one of the things, one of the practices that we have started as a family, we've been doing it for several years now, is having a family meeting. So we have a meeting every Sunday night where we have an agenda. And um, our kids know that our family is a is an organization, right? We have um, individuals and people want to get their needs met and pursue their goals. And they have a say in it. They're not allowed to dictate uh, because they are eight and 10 after all, but they're allowed to register when they think something isn't, you know, going well and And we work. We talk about what we're going to work on. And I think having that, um, those practices and those habits, um, and and us talking and articulating, uh, making making clear how we're making decisions, so that it is our our logic and our process is transparent to them, will hopefully um, expose them early on to the fact that they, you know, how we operate and and make it demystified a bit for them. Um, But but I don't know what the right age is for teaching this type of framework. I mean, my co-author who taught for many years at Stanford um, did teach this course, uh, which actually the framework was not part of the course when she taught it. That was something we came up with collectively as we were working on the book. But she said that a lot of the topics in her course felt a bit too far off for undergraduates. And so, you know, it was something that really did resonate when people were in there. Um, early to mid twenties, uh, which is typically the age people, you know, went back to the business school. Um, so it would be interesting. I don't know if that has changed since the time that she taught it in undergrad. Uh, but I think you know, breaking it down and even talking about the fact that it's okay to make career decisions with relationships involved, and it's okay to make relationship decisions and think about money as part of that, because those are the things that I think we're socialized to really separate. That can happen very early on and, and should be happening at any age.
1: Well said, and I think there's a lot of stuff, um, a lot of research and, and things that are happening in that space right now. And I, for one, um, would love you know to hopefully use this platform to tell more people about the framework, but also um, help People, younger listeners, I would say, uh, be more well acquainted with, um, you know, if they're coming up with a decision in their life, they have to perhaps support um, their families or support their elderly folks. Um, What does that look like for them? How is that going to impact their situation? Because I know that there's a lot of friends in my network who are where their parents are getting older, and they need to be taken care of, you know, and, and that's going to impact uh, their living arrangements, their financial situation, as well. And so I think this framework is going to really help them um, as uh, to the best uh, as it can for, for those guys. Uh, what is the best way that people can connect with you?
0: Um, well, I've mentioned our book website, moneylovebook.com. So that's a great way to get additional resources and take the quiz. Um, but I'm also on LinkedIn at Abby Davison. Uh, and on Instagram at abby.davison as well
1: thank you so much Abby really appreciate it you coming on and I really hope that a lot of our listeners will take note of uh, this great conversation but really appreciate you coming on and then we'll speak soon
0: thanks so much it's terrific to be here
1: thank you everyone for tuning into this episode if you like this episode be sure to check out more by subscribing to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and more. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time.